Hello and welcome to another episode of the Transportation Exchange Podcast presented by Rush Trucksners of Canada. I'm your host, Jason Cuddy. On today's episode, we're excited to welcome Richard Ross, the VP of GTS Leasing. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. So we wanted to have you on. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of get to how we connected kind of at the very end, um, but let's give everyone a little bit of context of, of your background and kind of how you got into this industry. That's a long story, but uh, I actually got into the industry at the age of 10 years old, believe it or not. <laughs> I, uh, my father had a uh, truck repair business in Birmingham, England, and uh, took me to work on a Saturday morning, and uh, he thought it was great because I used to fit under the chassis very nicely, you know, size-wise. So, uh, of course, I had to hand in the flashlights and hand in the wrenches and take them back and everything as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, spent a lot of time underneath trucks in the early days. But uh, it was fascinating for me as a young child to grow up in that. And then uh, later on, I went to uh, university and did a co-op course in uh, business as well as mechanical engineering. And um, not sure exactly what industry I wanted to go to, but trucks lured me back. Um, because if you grow up with them and you, you're you inside them, you hear them, you work mm-hmm. on them, um, they become part of you. So uh, it was inevitable that I would end up in the uh, the trucking industry and uh, been in the industry a long time. Um, and happy to say that I'm just about as enthusiastic as I was when I started as well. But uh, we can talk about it a little bit later. But if you think about what's going to happen, it's quite interesting. But um, getting back to the trucking industry and how I've been involved, I work for Volvo Heavy Truck uh, in England um, and in the Middle East and in Canada for 25 years, basically. Um, I was a salesman in a truck dealership in uh, Birmingham, England, Um, covered the black country, basic industry, steel, um, iron and steel, coal fields, um, really great vocational trucks as well as long haul. So uh, ground my teeth in that. Um, eventually became sales and marketing director for the dealership, and uh, we won a lot of awards by uh, producing a lot of good sales and uh, parts results as well, so it was good. Um, so Volvo took me and <clears throat> put me in the Middle East, and I lived in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia for six years, with my family, that is. I <laughs> brought my two kids up there as well. Uh, and I covered the um, Saudi Arabia and parts of the Middle East for Volvo trucks, buses, and cars. Um, we'd bring uh, also Renault cars in and Pirelli tires from Italy. And, of course, white GMC, when it first mm-hmm. came to the U.S., uh, we bought those trucks over from the U.S. as well. So nice. spent six years there, and then uh, Volvo was coming to Canada to, uh, to launch, and I was brought over to Canada and took part in helping build the dealership network and then eventually became president of Volvo Trucks Canada. Wow. So uh, I love the time. I've basically had two families uh, mm-hmm. with the trucking industry. One is Volvo and the second one is Navistar. And, right. uh, I worked for International Trucks and looked after the company stores in British Columbia and then came back to Ontario and uh, worked with carrier centers for a number of years as well. So uh, got a soft spot for uh, international, no question of doubt, of doubt about it, that's for sure. Excellent. That's a pretty cool story. And, it, you know, I have a couple of friends that, you know, same thing, came from Europe and they worked at Ford, actually. But they, you know, from Turkey, lived in Italy, you know, went to Africa. It, it's, it's, it's wild how far, you know, you'll travel. And I find sometimes in Canada people don't go too far from, from their backyard, you know? So it, it's always interesting to hear that, you know, where the industry takes you. And like you said, kind of, you got into it at a young age and kind of once you're in, you're in, you know, it seems to be, it just, it pulls you in. You can leave a little bit, but it always seems to drag you right, right back into it. 
Well, it's funny you should say that because uh, I actually retired once and uh, that didn't work out too well. <laughs> so I tried it for three months and I thought, oh God, this is not going to work. And uh, I have a friend who, uh, who owns GTS Leasing in the States in California and uh, he wanted me to come and help him. So that's what we did. And uh, GTS actually stands for Green Trucking Solutions. And we were one of the first companies to get into solar panels. Uh, and install APUs on trucks as well, because obviously there was no idling in California right. for uh, a long time now. So we're, we're pretty well the market leader when it comes to installing solar panels and APUs as well. And then we branched out into uh, leasing of uh, heavy trucks and trailers, uh, mainly international, right. um, Kenworths as well, but we also uh, do dry vans and reefers as well. So that's what we do. Gotcha. And, and so it's interesting. So with the California background with the company, and it kind of leads to kind of what we wanted to chat with you about today is they are the driving force of all this new change we're seeing. And, um, you know, in previous episodes, we've had our, our next team who is the Navistar arm of Zero Emissions. And we've talked to them about the electric MV. And, you know, there's been re- refinements and changes to the, the diesel engine, most recently S13. We'll chat a little bit more on, on that. But it's coming. You can see this big shift coming uh, as a big disruption to the industry, but obviously a lot of it's driven, you know, by California. The carb rules are very, very, very aggressive. Um, so maybe we'll just chat a bit, you know, as far as, you know, you, you kind of had a chance now with, with this, with the leasing business that you're in to kind of see all OEMs and kind of, you know, outside of just even North America, maybe give us kind of your, your, your 20,000 foot view of, you know, what are you seeing today between the different OEMs and, and, and even different continents as far as uh, what's coming? Interesting question. Um, one of my responsibilities at GTS leasing is strategic planning. So I'm always looking forward uh, And I've always been a futurist myself as well, so it kind of goes arm in arm with that. But, um, yeah, we're right at the seat of uh, development in California, that's for sure. Uh, We see an awful lot of stuff. (laughs) I I say stuff because there is an awful lot of stuff going on there. Um, But when it comes to emissions, uh, they are aggressive. And until I started looking at the different technologies, I didn't realize just what a seismic shift it's going to mean for the industry. It's not just for the manufacturers in terms of R&D. It's also for the customers and the operators. What the hell are they going to choose and what's going to suit them for their pickup points, delivery points, and along which transport corridors? But we're both in the, inter- in the uh, distribution business. You mm-hmm. as a distributor with Rush Truck Centers and ourselves at GTS Leasing being a leasing company, leasing to all over the U.S. With different, from our different, uh, different depots. But um, if you think about what's going to happen, um, CARB as well as New York State have stated now that they want zero emission trucks by 2035. It's not far away. <laughs> that's 12 to 13 years ago, and, and it's easy to think, oh, that's some way away now. But just, just think like this for a minute. Cast your mind back to 2010 emissions when they came. Yeah. It seems like yesterday, doesn't it? It does. It's crazy. That time has flown by, and here we are in 2022 12, nearly 13 years since then, but that's the same time that we're going to go from here to 2035. It's it's on our doorstep. So the future's here already. So my job is to really think about what it's going to mean to us as a leasing company. And I can talk for distributorships as well, anybody who's distributing trucks. 
Seismic shift is the word that I use, but it's going to have to mean a huge shift in every department. Right. Let's just take sales, for example. Um, I've always been into needs-based selling. Um, I've been into many, many distributorships in North America. It doesn't matter whether for what product it is, whether it's a car or a truck or something else. And many sales professionals start talking about the features and benefits of their truck. They never bother to ask you what you actually need. Right. <clears throat> so we've really got to um, go strictly into questioning the customer about where are your pickup points, where are your deliveries, what's the distance between those two, which corridors are you going to use, and what infrastructures along that corridor in order to fuel it. Do we have EV charging stations? Do we have hydrogen? Do we have CNG? Diesel, we know, is uh, certainly uh, prevalent everywhere. Um, and we know that people like Chevron um, and Shell are developing hydrogen fuel stations across the U.S., but it's not going to happen overnight. Right. So as a salesperson, we really have to know what that infrastructure is almost on a week-by-week basis so that we can recommend to the customers the kind of trucks that they need. But um, as far as I can see, electric vehicles that are running around 80,000 pounds or 82,000 pounds because they get the extra concession um, are operating around 300, uh, battery vehicles are around 300 kilometers. Right. Um, hydrogen fuel cells are about 300 miles. So they're doing about 450 yeah. kilometers, uh, something like that. Um, and if you look at some of the operators that they've got, um, Kenworth has been operating with a Toyota fuel cell out of LA port now for best part of a year. Uh, those trucks are doing about 300 miles. They're refueling in 15 to 20 minutes, and then they're back out to complete a shift uh, on that as well. But coming back to CARB with 2035, <clears throat> excuse me, that is an aggressive step. But if you think that all the drayage vehicles have got to be completely zero emissions by 2035, yeah. that's new and news going in and out of the port. Yep. Um, but when it comes to the actual fleets themselves, there's a little bit of leeway. They've basically got, um, I think, seven years to convert their fleet to 100%. So between 2035 and 2042 is when the fleets have to be completely converted over to uh, zero emissions. Gotcha. So there's a little bit of leeway there, but of course we know the length of, of a truck, mm-hmm. um, 800,000 miles, maybe a million if you're lucky. Um, so basically they're not going to be able to turn their fleets over 100% in, in one flip. Can't be done. Right. It's not realistic. So they're going to have to work with CARB and New York State and a few, I think a few of the other states are going to follow to really integrate on a, on a planned basis year by year a conversion over to these trucks. And then it becomes a question of which one do they go for. Um, and that's something that, that we've been looking into uh, at GTS Leasing. Um, I actually went over to Switzerland earlier on this year um, and visited <clears throat> with Hyundai in Switzerland. They've actually got 47 trucks running with 25 different customers um, they've been running them for well over a year, and I understand now that they've got about just over 2 million kilometers in total between all of those vehicles. And I was lucky enough to talk one-on-one with some of these operators, and 
every operator I spoke to, and this is without the manufacturer being present, so <laughs> I got, I believe, a true story. Yeah. Um, every one of those operators said they'd been running trouble-free, uh, and they were very reliable, obviously quiet. Um, I did drive inside one. I didn't actually drive it. I wasn't allowed to, but... Uh, I uh, drove inside it, and it's extremely quiet, and the torque is unbelievable, as you would yeah. expect from that kind of vehicle. I just wonder what the tyre wear is going to be like. You know? <laughs> so that's something else. But <clears throat> coming back to the effect on um, distribution channels, um, it's not just the sales force that needs to go into needs-based selling, deeply, that is. But think about the finance. Um, the cost mm. of these vehicles is, I think about three times, and I'm talking about fuel cell vehicles, is about three times the, the cost of a conventional diesel truck. So from a finance point of view, we don't really know the life of this vehicle yet. We're going to have an idea of the cap cost. Mm-hmm. We don't know the depreciation, and we sure don't know the residual value of those either. So when it comes to finance, we've all really got to, to get together with the banks, with the manufacturers, with ourselves, our own organizations, and work out what's best for the customer. Interestingly enough, um, with the Swiss example that I've just given you, um, they're running on a cost per kilometer basis to the actual customer, hmm. which is very interesting. Um, I'm not sure that that's feasible to do over here because there's a huge diesel tax in Switzerland and in Europe. Gotcha. And because they're running fuel cell vehicles, they're exempt from that diesel tax, which means that their competitive running costs are the same cost per kilometre pretty well as they would be with diesel. Like I say, I don't know. I mean, Mm -hmm. driving in here this morning, I was shocked to see that the diesel was, was... basically $2.40 a litre, um, uh, $0.70, $0.80 more than gas now. Um, Shocking. (laughs) So um, we still don't know what the cost of a kilogram of hydrogen is going to be over here either. Uh, It's very, very difficult to to know what's going to happen. But we have to start thinking about those things now. Um, You asked me what other effects were were coming in. Again, just sticking with the distribution channels. We've talked about sales. Let's talk about service. Um, That's going to be colossal as well. Obviously, we've got the training point of view from electrics and then the step up from electrics to dealing with hydrogen. But when you come to a service department, you just can't drive a hydrogen fuel cell truck into a workshop alongside a conventional diesel um, from a safety point of view. Um, all the bays have to be changed in terms of having exhaust fans and then all of the hydrogen lines and tanks have to be purged with nitrogen. So there's a whole new setup in the workshop. Um, And using the Hyundai example, because that's really the only hydrogen fuel cell truck that I've actually seen and put hands on, that's a cab forward that tilts um, there. They've got two hydrogen fuel cells in the truck Um, the membrane or the filter in that fuel cell has to be changed. Again, they're not sure. Is it 100,000 kilometers? Is it 150? They don't really know as such yet. But it takes about eight hours to do that job. Now, interestingly enough, they can take one fuel cell out from the top of the chassis by tilting the cab, but the second fuel cell has to come out from the bottom of the chassis, (laughs) which means that you've either got to have a truck ramp... Yep. Or you've got to have a pit. So, 
again, we're only thinking of 2035. This is stuff that we have to be thinking about in the service department as well. And the cost for putting all the piping, the safety, um, the nitrogen into a workshop is going to mount up if you really want to look after your customers, which we've got to do. There's no choice. We, we don't have a choice in this matter. No, I mean, if, if you want this to succeed, I mean, it's one thing the product is there. I think we're seeing that in the market, <clears throat> that the product is, is coming along, uh, the technology is impressive. But without the background infrastructure to support it, it's it's dead in the water. And like you said, the sales people are, I think are doing a good job marketing it, but they need to understand, you know, where is it really effective and where is it not going to be as effective for the customer, but it's all the, it's all the support. It's the shops. I know for here at our location, as we introduced the electric battery powered vehicles, um, you know, there's certain requirements as far as, you know, training for the technicians, but you know, as you said, certain requirements with regards to the shop, as far as, you know, lifting capacity needs so much overhead space because you have to get out of vehicle differently than you would normally with, with the diesel engines, um, charging stations, the ability to power at the stations. Is there enough power coming to your building? Is your infrastructure current enough to be able to handle the, the loads that are coming? There's, there's so much in the background to make these things successful after they land at your doorstep that, that has to go hand in hand with these vehicles being pushed out onto the street. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to see the success that we need to see, especially to meet these carb requirements because outside of the hydrogen and battery electric at this point, those are the only two ways really to get there. I mean, the diesel engines are getting better and better and better, um, but they're not going to get to zero. They're going to get pretty close, which is pretty impressive when you consider where they came from. Um, but they're still never going to hit the, the carb requirements. So, you know, the push is on with all the OEMs to, to find solutions, but you need government infrastructure support. You need national infrastructure support, U.S., Canada side, but then also just locally uh, for all the dealerships to get involved, you know, to, to get behind it and put in the resources, time, training, and money to, to be able to support the product when it does actually hit the customer and is on the road. Absolutely right, Jason. No question. <clears throat> and if we think about it as well, I mean, think about the parts uh, as well. Um, we're going to be selling diesels and operating diesels for at least another 10 to 15 years, um, maybe even perhaps a little bit longer than that. Um, so as a dealer or a leasing company, you've really got to have parts still for the conventional engines. Then you've got to have parts for the, the full electric vehicles. Um, you've got to have parts for the fuel cell vehicles. I know the cycles uh, are going to change in terms of service intervals for different components, but nevertheless, those parts still need to be available. Um, so it's time now, the future's actually now, it is. Uh, that we have to start doing this um, and stop thinking about, well, it's some way in the future, because I, I still go back to how close 2010 was, and, and here we are with the same distance to go to 2035. And... Uh, I expect Canada will probably follow CARB as well in terms of uh, timing as well. So that's that, that's for sure. Yeah, I agree. They usually tend to, to follow indefinitely what happens in the U.S. mainly because the majority of the customers are running down to the U.S. and significantly a lot of them are into California as well. So it, one way or another, they have to meet those requirements, whether it's you know to be running in California or, like you said, we'll, we'll adopt it at some point. So it'll it'll come, you know in the future that's right so we've been looking as i say at uh, inside our own company about what we're going to do um and, and our own vision is between us all is that we believe that diesel will continue long distance for let's just say 10 to 15 years right so you'll have them coming in from uh, east west north south 
So what we've done, we've bought a considerable amount of land uh, in Apple Valley, California, uh, which is just near I-15 and the junction of I-58 near Barstow. So you've got the big north-south route coming up from Mexico and go, going up to northern California, and then you've got east-west from California going out to uh, the east coast. Um, so we're, with partners, we're building a fuel station that will look after CNG, char- uh, charging stations, hydrogen, uh, as well as diesel. Um, but... Here's the thing. Diesel won't be allowed to go into L.A., the metropolis of L.A., so we're building uh, a warehousing complex with cross docks so that the long-haul loads can split the loads. Um, And uh, they'll be able to take those, load again, go off, do their distance running, but our new technology trucks will be able to take the loads, some of them fully 82,000 pounds, some smaller, into the metropolis of LA, fuel up and go there. And uh, there are, I think, six hydrogen stations so far in LA, and they're starting to mushroom already. Uh, Just near our own dealership, we've got a hydrogen fuel cell station that's uh, literally half a mile away. So uh, that's probably the uh, the area we're going to be talking to our customers about in terms of uh, what suits them and, you know, where they go from there. And the warehousing part is interesting because we see it a little bit here in in the GTA and that's strictly just due to traffic, I think, is, you know, before all the hubs were, you know, in Mississauga or within the Toronto area and then you'd go east, west, north, kind of where you need to go. But because getting through the city is probably as bad as L.A. (laughs) in the middle of the day, you see a lot of customers who are still based here, their head office necessarily is here and their main warehouse is here, but then they'll drop uh, a warehouse, you know, maybe two hours west or two hours east of the city and then so now you can time when you're coming through the city versus having to come through in the middle of the day. Um, so I could see that playing out. But now instead of the traffic part, it's almost a range part. If you're going to run, you know, a battery electric vehicle, say, uh, on, a, on a class eight to go, you know, channel it, you know, into the States, well, you're not going to make it, you know, all the way on one charge. So by having your, your depots kind of spread out at right intervals, you can kind of do what you're saying almost, but almost switch out the vehicles, you know, drop the load and the next one takes it and takes it. You can run fully zero emissions, but you're going to have to put the infrastructure in on your end to kind of get you there. That's for sure. I mean, uh, if you put yourselves in the shoes of a dispatcher in a trucking company as well, they're really going to have their work cut out for them in terms of what loads can be carried, what technology vehicles are allowed to go where, and more importantly, where the hell can they refuel. Right. Um, that's apart from driver shifts and everything else as well uh, in terms of their, their terms. So, uh, yeah, there's, a, there's an awful lot. Like I say, I keep coming back to this word seismic. It is. Yes. I mean, we've we've all been in this industry for a good long time as well, but I don't think we've ever seen technology changes like this. No, and so uh, fast too. And so fast. And, and for what it's worth, I'm all in favor of it because we really need to do something about global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, you see more extreme climate um, events year by year. So uh, we need to do something. And... Uh, the quicker we can work together to get it done, the better. Agreed. And in the interim, and, and you know, until all that gets implemented and, and gets up to the scalability where it's you know it's functional for every you know uh, operator to use, there is still the internal combustion diesel engine. And you were just at the recent S13 launch for Navistar, and we just had them on the podcast. 
Uh, and it's impressive what they've done with that technology. So you're, you know, you're, you're squeezing the sponge pretty much dry as far as what you can do. But I think they did a good job squeezing this. Maybe kind of give us your, your input of what you saw at, at, at the launch. Yeah, so I was in Las Vegas, um, was there for the launch and actually drove the truck as well. Um, it's interesting to see, I always thought the A26 was a good engine. Uh, good. It's always been good on fuel and our customers mm-hmm. told us that. But um, you talk about squeezing the sponge, they, they're, they're squeezing it even harder. And uh, my understanding is that the fuel consumption is going to be much, much better than the A26, which right. is phenomenal. Um, and it was interesting at the launch, they talked about the uh, trait on this is that it would be the last diesel that they ever designed uh, and so forth. But I must say I was extremely impressed. Uh, quiet engine, Plenty of torque. Uh, the truck I drove was on 12 and 40s, um, 450, 17, 50 foot-pounds of torque. Plenty of torque there. Um, I know I was only loaded at 45,000 pounds, but nevertheless, I mean, it just felt as though there was nothing on the back. But uh, most impressed. Interesting that it's uh, designed with its own transmission. Yeah. And then I really like the idea of the two-stage SCR as well, and then getting rid of the uh, EGR cooler was uh, was, a, was a smart move. So uh, most impressive. So um, we've already said we've got a lot of customers that uh, do high miles because they double shift. Um, so uh, we certainly like the opportunity to get some trucks in earlier on and uh, get some miles on them and uh, take a look at them. Yeah, it'll be fun to see them on the road you know, sometime next year to demo should come out and then available, I think, to the general public towards the end of next year. So the timing's good as far as the backlog of production getting cleaned up. So hopefully that'll line up nicely. But yeah, the, the technology behind it, especially said the after-treatment system, was, was really interesting to kind of understand how, how they achieved what they did. Yeah, uh, yeah, I hadn't seen that before, so that was a new one as well. But uh, yeah, it's it's great to see international branching out and uh, having the benefit of, of world engineering now with Traton as well. And uh, coming from Europe, I've always admired Scania as a Volvo guy. I, yeah. It sounds funny, <laughs> but I always always admired Scania. Um, and I see they've got a full electric vehicle truck uh, as well on the other side of the pond there as well. Um, and interestingly enough, it's, uh, I, I see that internationals teamed up with GM. They're well in the game on uh, going down that road as well. So everybody's there in terms of uh, getting into the new technology. So uh, exciting times, challenging, yes. Uh, we're going to have to push ourselves to really, really think differently. But uh, it's exciting. It's uh, as exciting as I can ever remember. <laughs> I agree. I know it, it is interesting and it'd be fun to watch it play out like in the next 12 to 13 years and see if we hit the targets and how we do it and, and how it's implemented. Um, another part of, of what you do, which was another fascinating part, is mm-hmm. on top of all this and having this wonderful knowledge of what's going on in industry and kind of the outlook, you also taken the time to, you know, you're, you're now an, you're an author and you've, you've put out a couple of books. Maybe walk us through that you've got two books, I guess, currently available, uh, The Hybrid, Ed, Hybrid Enemy and Eye of the Hybrid Storm. Um, maybe walk us through, you know, what got you into the, the stories and give kind of a bit of background of what uh, readers can expect to see in these books. Well, I, I can thank COVID for that. <laughs> <laughs> Lockdown uh, came along and um, obviously, like everybody else, I was confined to home. I actually live in Toronto, even though I, I work in LA and around the US. But uh, um, anyway, I'm locked down in, uh, in Burlington uh, and I'm at home and I'm thinking... <laughs> 
I really need to clean out all these old files and boxes and stuff like that. So uh, I started opening drawers and boxes and stuff like that and found this folder of a book that I actually started 30 mm -hmm. years ago, believe it or not. Um, I'd always had it in mind to write a book um, based on the shipping industry and the transportation industry. And uh, so I pulled this all handwritten file of notes and stuff like that and started reading it and okay so why don't i write a book <laughs> um actually that's not true to start with because i i thought i've got a character who could fit an author that i i'd read about in the u.s in the uk sorry and uh, i called this guy up and said hey i've got a character that might fit into your your series of books right um you want to sort of take a look and maybe do a collaboration between us and uh it's a guy called andrew turpin and uh he was very very gracious and he said why don't you take a shot yourself he said i it took me a year to write my <laughs> first book give it a shot and he kind of threw it back at me in a very very nice way yeah. so i typed out all this longhand and then edited it and added to the story and eventually finished it found myself an editor in london england and sent it to her, and she constructively ripped it up and sent it back. <laughs> but uh, it took me a while to sort of fully appreciate that she was looking at it from a purely a reader's point of view, which I wasn't. I was doing it from a writer's point of view. Right. Uh, not necessarily the best thing. So um, I put myself in her shoes, and I rewrote it, and um, it's been a success, so... The Hybrid Enemy starts off as a family saga, mm -hmm. um, goes into mystery and crime based on the shipping industry, worldwide okay. shipping industry, and then ends up as a political thriller. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm happy to say that the Amazon rating is sitting at 4.5 out Excellent. of 5 so far. Nice. So that's good. So um, I wrote the second book, carrying on from there, uh, and that gets more into the road transport uh, sector as opposed to shipping. Right. Um, I don't want to give too much away. No, here, don't give too know. much. But at least, at least people know what what they're going to find yeah. when they dig into the books, right? That's so. right. And uh, currently, I'm writing the third one. I'm about uh, a third of the way. Th sorry, three quarters of the way through. Um, and then that'll have to go up for editing. But I'm anticipating that should be ready by end of first quarter next next year. Excellent. But uh, I. It, with with uh, lockdown, I just <laughs> loved it. I, I get into my own world and develop the characters, and you actually become the character, believe it or not. <laughs> That's exciting. So, yeah, I, I, I encourage everyone to go Amazon, I guess, the best route to go to find the books and, and give them a read and dive into them and get caught up so you're ready to go when the third one launches, you know, hopefully soon into the new year, most likely by the time it goes through its channels. So That's right. So um, anybody who wants to know more about the trucks can go on to richarddross.com. That's my own website. Perfect. And um, it's a little bit about myself in there as well as the books themselves as well. And that there's a link there to uh, Amazon and uh, you can just purchase them online, either in digital Kindle format or in paperback. Excellent. Hey, well, thank you. I want to thank you for, for coming on, sharing your, your, your rich history of the industry uh, on both sides of, of the pond, <laughs> uh, what your outlook is, and, and definitely sharing you know your, your, your stories so that people can know where to find them and, and get caught up on, on your book. So thank you again for doing that. Thanks, Jason. It was a pleasure. I've enjoyed talking with you. Excellent. Well, hey, that concludes today's episode. I want to thank Richard from GTS Leasing for joining us. And to catch up on past episodes, check out transportationexchangepodcast.ca. Until next time, thanks for listening.